Well, it seems like just about every week now I stand up here and I say, wow, what a week this has been. What a week this has been. So, welcome to Remedial Christianity 101. We're going to start today with the basics. This is the Bible. Uh, in the big picture, in, in the meta-narrative, uh, I think the Bible is the story of God's love and his compassion towards his creation with his love and compassion for man at the top of the list. Even when the first of his creation chose to uh, disobey and to dishonor God, and thereby allowed sin to enter the world, God did not give up on his relationship with man. But ever since this battle has raged between Satan and God, between what is holy and unholy, between what is good and what is evil, and every man has to make a personal decision as to whom they choose to follow. Now, in my view, the Bible provides the best description, the best perspective on the world we live in. It makes the most sense. Because even the very best of us, the best Christian that you know, the most holy, God-like person you've ever met, struggles with temptation and unholy desires. But through the grace provided by God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the powering of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome temptation and evil desires, and we can be considered holy and blameless even when we're not. But when we give in to those desires, when we reject God, when we choose to follow or worship anything else, it seems like evil is immediately present. We end up with the slaughter of school children. We end up with the wholesale and seemingly accepted abuse of children and adults in the congregation perpetrated by the very people who are appointed to protect them. It's been a lot of heavy news in the paper this last week. You know, I just finished reading a book about the fall of Rome and how it was impacted by Attila the Hun and the political intrigue and the imperial scandals and, and the wholesale slaughter of entire people groups was no different then than it is today. I think over and over again, this just proves that progressive ideology is flat out false. Man is not progressing towards enlightenment. On the contrary, the Bible tells us that we're slouching towards Gomorrah. We're running to Revelation. But then again, it seems like we've always been on that path from the garden. And so we keep reading over and over throughout the Bible, over and over, even in Revelation. How long, O Lord, how long do we have to persevere and endure? How long do we have to overcome? So it seemed appropriate to me to begin with, um, not my prayer this morning, but a prayer from the book of Psalms. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry, day by, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and were rescued, and you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
We feel those words this week. And after David's outpouring, after this display of his soul sickness in chapter 22, what comes next? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So we need to try to hang on to that in our darkest days. There's power in those words. So we hang on to that as we jump back into the epistle of joy that is Revelation. I'll wait for you. There you go. It is an epistle of joy. So we, we, have, we have worked our way through the, the, the seven letters to the seven churches. We've worked our way through the scene in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, which, which depicts, it shows that the, that the Lord is in control and the Lamb is at his side. We've worked our way now through the seven seals plus an interlude. And today we begin the discussion of seven trumpets. Now, as we have been discussing all along, we will continue to discuss our approach, our, our understanding of the book of Revelation is that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all describe the same or similar events covering the same period of time. And that time period is the time from Jesus' resurrection approximately to the time of his return, whenever that's going to be. But the different portrayals of the judgments, the, the seals, trumpets, and the bowls, they're all described symbolically and from different perspectives so that they can give us a different sense or a different feel for these events at different angles from different viewpoints to help us understand them better. It's, it's not unlike, I think, that the, the four Gospels all tell the story of Jesus. But there are differences in the details. Not difference or different in, in that they're contradictory, but different as in some details are shared in one book that aren't shared in another. Not every gospel has the birth narrative, for example. The gospel writers were writing to different audiences and had different perspectives or, or different areas of emphasis. And I think that's, that's similar to what's happening in Revelation as well. Here's another quick look at the, at the chart that we passed out a week or two ago. Um, so for the purposes of this morning, we're, we're kind of not looking at these. We're looking at these highlighted versions. So you see, here's the seal line, here's the trumpet line, here's the bowl line. But they all start with a setting in heaven. The first four judgments are all grouped together in all of these different categories. Judgments five and six are grouped together. There's always a portion of the earth that's affected, and we're told how it's affected. There's always a response on, from those who are impacted. There's always an interlude in the same place in every instance. And then there's a, an end there's an end. This shows us from different perspectives and different angles how God is at work, how he has been at work throughout the ages. The story is now told and it's being retold from different perspectives. And we'll see as we get to these sections, these are telling the same story, but from different perspectives. So the book of Revelation doesn't really follow a standard linear timeline. It just doesn't work to read it that way. That's why we can get through the seals uh, and, the, and the trumpets. And then in chapter 12, then Jesus is born. Well, if we're following a strict timeline, that doesn't really make any sense. So the book is not chronological from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, but it tells the story. It tells this history of God and man in several ways so that we can all find some different way to understand it, to relate to it. 
from different viewpoints. And so last week we read about the opening of the seventh seal, which prompted the, the seven angels each being given a, a trumpet for a total of seven trumpets. And then at the opening of the seventh seal, the angel threw the golden censer to the earth, signifying the end of the physical world. The old earth had come to an end. And now the story starts over with the trumpets. From a slightly different perspective, it's not a new series of events, we don't think, but it's being retold with different details and different points of emphasis. So before we jump in, I think this is really interesting for us to consider the scriptural history, the scriptural use of trumpets. Why were trumpets used? There are 66 references to trumpets in the Bible. 50 of those, 50 of the 66 occur in the Old Testament. That's a pretty heavy percentage of trumpet use in the Old Testament. So that leaves there, there are 16 in the New Testament. And of those 16, 11 of them are in Revelation. Pretty heavy, pretty heavy percentage. It's almost as though the use, use of trumpet in Revelation should call us back to the use of trumpet in the Old Testament. So here's a quick sampling of the use of trumpets in the Old Testament. Four times in Exodus. The first three times, trumpets announced the presence of God. And the fourth time, the trumpet was used to gather the people to Mount Sinai because God was present. So every time, they announced the presence of God. In Leviticus 25, a loud trumpet blast was used to announce the Day of Atonement. Isn't that interesting? In Joshua, trumpets were used to announce judgment on Jericho. You remember the people marched around, and on the seventh day, seven trumpet blasts resulted in the utter destruction of the city, except for Rahab, who was somehow, I don't know, sealed, set apart, saved from destruction because of her obedience to God. Trumpet blasts were also used to announce kings. Psalm 47 says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord, with the sound of the trumpet. Three times in Isaiah, a trumpet is used as a warning. Isaiah 51 says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So a trumpet is used to announce transgression and sin, which was going to lead to judgment. In Ezekiel 33.4, it says, And if he, referring to the watchman on the tower, if the watchman sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Again, there's a connection here between a a warning and a judgment and the responsibility that comes along with having heard the trumpet blast, having heard the warning, and not having been prepared not responding appropriately to the trumpet. And Joel 2.1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Blow a trumpet when the Lord is near. So there's a obviously pretty consistent theme, I think, established between the trumpet blast as a warning and the imminent arrival of judgment. So it's not surprising shouldn't be surprising for us then that three times in the New Testament, the trumpet is directly associated with Jesus' second coming. He's coming. Jesus, the Lord is near. Judgment is coming. So I think you're seeing the, the big ideas here, the big patterns from scriptural use. Trumpets almost always signify something big is about to happen, and frequently that something big is the fact that judgment is a coming. Pay attention. 
Now, that's great news for believers. It's less great news for unbelievers or the earth dwellers, as they're referred to in Revelation. So let's keep all that background in mind as we jump into the trumpet judgments, and we'll see that here they also serve as warnings for people. So we're in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Fairly graphic imagery here, uh, hail and fire mixed with blood. That's a fairly striking image. That inspires uh, fear, dread. I hope it's supposed to. This is a warning. You know, we, we just read about the, the Exodus verse where the trumpet blast calls Israel to the mountain of God, and it produced fear and trembling among the people. It's supposed to produce some fear and trembling for us. It announces impending judgment. Now is the time to respond, it could say. But notice here the language says that the, the hail, fire, and blood were thrown upon the earth. This is a very active description. This requires intent. Hail, fire, and blood didn't just, you know, appear and happen to fall on the earth. It came from heaven from the throne room. These, these judgments are intentionally dispatched to the earth at, at God's direction, at the, at the Lamb's oversight and execution. This is a judgment. And so we begin to see already that the trumpets are a little bit different from the seals. Um, if you remember the, the, the first seal, one of the four living creatures said, come, and, and there appeared a, a white horse and a rider. And he came out, it said, conquering and to conquer. The second rider was permitted. That's what, that's what it says. He was permitted to take peace from the earth. The third seal had a, had a rider with scales, and there was a, a voice talking about the, the cost of goods. It was all very broad, very general in its description as to what's going to happen during the period of tribulation. It's, it was very big, broad terms. The seal judgments, in fact, sound almost passive from a heavenly perspective. The riders show up, and then these things happen. As opposed to what here sounds like a very intentional trumpet judgment. Hail and fire and blood were deliberately, intentionally thrown down to the earth. So you start to see a pretty big difference in perspective here. The seals show us this big picture, the big picture effects of God allowing Satan to fight for power and control. Even though it's made clear that God is allowing him to rage, and, and only for a period of time. But the trumpet judgments start to get more specific. They're more detailed. It's as though they are describing the earth-based effects of the four horsemen. It's almost like a cause and effect. But it's still fairly broad in scope. But the trumpet judgments, with this active phrasing, it leaves no doubt that God is in control. The angels are given their trumpets. And then we see the effects of their trumpet blasts, which serve as a warning. Hail, fire, and blood resulted in a third of the earth being burned up along with a third of the trees, and a third of the green grass was burned up. Now I'm just spitballing here. This could, be, this could be totally wrong. But is it possible that what we refer to as climate change could be a sign of judgment? I don't know. I'm pretty sure we don't have a lot of say in it. 
But this is not yet, at one-third, this is not yet end-of-the-world type stuff. But losing a third of the earth burned up and losing a third of trees, I mean, that should serve to wake people up to the fact that the end of the world is coming. It should wake them up to the knowledge and awareness of God. Now again, very, I think, very well-meaning Christians intent on cracking the Revelation code. They will, they will look at this verse and the, and the next judgments, and they'll try to come up with all kinds of literal explanations for what this bloody hail fire represents in, in somewhat more modern terms. And the explanations can get pretty tortured and pretty convoluted. And, and so I'm not going to waste any time in discussing any of those explanations. It is the end of the world. Could you reprogram those to make a, like a trumpet blast? Because that would be awesome. <laughs> We're not going to waste time looking at all the various explanations that people come up with because it seems entirely unnecessary and more importantly, it misses the point. The safest approach we have in understanding Scripture is to use other Scripture to help us understand it. We can easily see patterns and principles that help us understand better, if not fully, what we read. For example, it turns out there's a very strong connection between the seven trumpet judgments and the ten Egyptian plagues. The seventh plague on Egypt came in the form of hail. And not just regular old ordinary hail, it was hail and fire that rained down together on the, on the earth, and it was accompanied by loud thunder. Sounds like a God judgment, doesn't it? And we're going to continue to see this pattern throughout the judgments. And just like in Egypt, where the plagues were meant to demonstrate the power, the power and the authority of Jehovah God to warn the people of Egypt and people for all time that God is patient and he is just and he is fair, but there will come a time when his justice must prevail. The trumpets serve this same purpose. Now, in our non-literal approach, we don't really necessarily need to assume that exactly one-third of everything was burned up. You know, I'm not sure there's an angel up there going, nope, nope, you missed one. Right there, yep, now we're at one-third. I don't think that's the idea behind this. I think the big idea is that people are going to see the effects of this judgment. It will be obvious. It will be clear. And so the result should be, what that should prompt is the question for people, how am I going to respond to God's judgment? The next couple of verses. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So you'll notice here that like with the seals, there, there is no, there's no timeline here. It just, the, the narrative moves from trumpet to trumpet to trumpet, from seal to seal. We don't know if there's a pause, if there's a delay. We, we just don't know. We're told that there are seven trumpet blasts, and it had these results. But let's remember here that John is seeing this as a vision. So it's heavy with symbolism. So when John sees something like 
a mountain burning with fire, obviously it's a volcano. I'm pretty sure there is a word for that. At the time, that's not the word he chose to use. In fact, Mount Vesuvius erupted and buried Pompeii and devastated the Bay of Naples in 79 AD. If this was about a volcano, it probably would have said volcano, but it says something like a mountain, so we don't really know what that is. But I bet you when, when Vesuvius erupted, I bet dollars to donuts, there were pastors and, and congregates out carrying into the world signs. Repent, the end is near. Because we always assume we're the ones living in the end times. This is as bad as things can possibly get, we think. And yet, the Lord tarries. So whether this was a volcano or some other you know, natural anomaly that we're just not familiar with yet, we know that biblically, fire is a sign of judgment. Fire destroys, but it also purifies and refines. So the use of fire in a judgment makes perfect sense. And whatever this is, whatever this something like a great mountain is, again, it has a significant impact on the earth's oceans, as well as the ships on the sea. Although we're not really told how it affects the ships on the sea, but it does. So the big idea, there's this massive event. Now, in the first century, when when this is written, most of the commerce and most of the trade that was conducted was done via trade ships. They were moving goods from one location to another. Rome had a huge need for grain. There's no way they could produce it all. So they imported a lot of their grain from northern Africa, and it was transported via ship. So this second judgment that's going to have a huge impact on the earth, that a third of the ships are going to be destroyed, which means a third of the grain likely is going to be destroyed, which means the price of goods will go up. There will be scarcity That sounds a lot like what we talked about in the third seal. Now, frankly, I think those who take a more literal approach, they have a difficult task in explaining how a volcanic eruption turned the sea to blood. That seems like that's a bit of a stretch. But only a third of it. Or or how one-third of the sea creatures died. Um, And it's, it's interesting that it's listed in that order uh, the, the bloody sea likely led to the death of the sea life. It wasn't as though the fish blew up and then turned the, the sea red. That's not the order it's laid out. Or how a bloody sea led to ships being destroyed, but only a third of them. This speaks to something greater in control. And like the first trumpet judgment, there is mention of blood here in the second trumpet also. In the first, trust, in the first trumpet, it was hail, fire, and blood. It affects the land, but here... The water turns to blood. Which, anybody remember that great technicolor version of the Ten Commandments? You know, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go, and so Moses is told to strike the Nile with his staff. It only works in technicolor. (laughs) Moses strikes the Nile, and and, and the, the water turns to blood. As a warning to Pharaoh that his power, that Pharaoh's power was really quite limited compared to Jehovah God, Judgment will come if Pharaoh does not obey and let the people go. But he did not, and plague and judgment came. Similarities between the trumpets and the plagues. 
Well, then the third trumpet blast brings a great star falling from heaven, blazing like a torch. Well, this is obviously a meteor. We all know how this is going. We've seen the movie, right? There's a meteor on its way right now. I mean, obviously a meteor is going to strike the earth and kill us all. But only a third of it, as it turns out. Only a third of the water is going to be affected. Um, but this time it's the fresh water supply. Rivers and springs are impacted. And interestingly, we're told the name of the meteor, or this star, or whatever it is, it's wor- Wormwood. That's the name. And Wormwood is referred in Scripture as something very bitter. Romans 5 talks about the wisdom of avoiding forbidden women. And it says, her lips may drip honey, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. In third chapter of Lamentations, it says, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. Now, wormwood is not poisonous. It's very bitter, but it's not poisonous. And yet, in every case, every time in Scripture wormwood is used, symbolically, it represents something more, like lethal consequences. In Jeremiah 9.15, it says, the Lord, is t- the Lord in Jeremiah 19 is talking about the idolatry of Israel, and he says, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poison water to drink. It is symbolic of something larger. So the implication here, the, the effect of this judgment is a reduction in usable fresh water and the connection with this great star falling to earth. But again, it's being directed to earth. It doesn't just happen to be on a trajectory that will run into earth. It's being directed to the earth. This is a divine judgment. This is not, we can't come up with acid rain or industrial runoff or any other ways to, to explain the third of the fresh water. And there are, you can find papers, you can find interesting reports on these experts who've spent considerable time trying to figure out exactly where this meteor has to land to affect one-third of the Earth's fresh water supply. Or we could take this as perhaps a symbolic description of a, an end-time judgment that God is not pleased with hap- what's, what's, what's happening on the Earth, and he's trying to warn us. So think about these first three trumpet judgments so far. We know that a third of the Earth, trees, grass, all impacted. We know that a third of the sea is impacted. A third of the fish die. A third of ships are destroyed. And here, a third of the fresh water supply is made bitter. It's unusable. People will die, not from drinking the water, necessarily, because wormwood is not poisonous, but perhaps from a lack of drinking water, they would die. Now, in contrast to the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments here are much more specific. They're much more detailed, and they're all earth-based. The seals were the scene in heaven. The trumpets are describing what's happening on earth. It's a different perspective, but it sure seems to be related. Let's look at the fourth trumpet. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. I don't know if you noticed, but the theme of a third continues here in this verse. That's, that's the consistent pattern of the trumpet judgments thus far. And again, we don't need to get too literal with this here. The big idea is that there's going to be this, this sizable, noticeable impact on life on planet Earth. But it's contained. It's 
control that's limited to one-third. Who has the power to control all of this to just one-third? God's not going to allow this to get out of hand. This is a warning. This is not yet the end. This is all happening according to his will, not ours. So we see a third of the moon, a third of the sun, a third of the stars, all struck so that the light is reduced by a third, which likely means that we're going to see a significant change in the length of days, maybe, or just the brightness of days, or the the length and brightness of nights. The result being, it's just going to be darker. We're going to be living in more darkness. And here's another connection with the judgment brought on Egypt via the plagues. The ninth plague against Egypt was three days of darkness. Now, without trying to force too much into the text here, it seems to me that physical darkness in Egypt was a direct result of their spiritual darkness. When Pharaoh and the people continued to harden their hearts, and we're told they hardened their hearts, when they continued to harden their hearts, when they refused to acknowledge the light of God, then their physical condition was made to match their spiritual condition. It was dark. Darkness was a judgment, just as it is here. So we looked at the seals, and we talked about the first four being the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That that is, they bring about change and, and chaos and disorder. That's an indication that the end times have begun. And now we have the first four trumpets doing much the same thing. And you see it affects the earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the sky. All of our life on earth is impacted, which makes it sound a lot like Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. whole of creation waits for Jesus' return. Every facet of our life in this natural world is going to be impacted and affected as a result of the trumpet judgments. And when you, when you start to think about this, I mean, maybe, maybe you don't have any, any capacity to actually quantify in terms of a third or a fourth or whatever. But when you think about it, it seems like all of these events have been happening since sin entered the world. As shocked and heartbroken as we are by the incidents in Texas this week, as saddened as we are to read about the systemic cover-up of sexual sins in the Southern Baptist Convention, The reality is that Adam and Eve sinned, and in very short order, Cain killed Abel. One of the first babies born in a now sinful world killed his own brother. The effects of sin have been with us since creation, or shortly thereafter. And consequently, there have been periods of God's judgment as well. It justifies logic. It defies logic and human experience to suggest that the seal and trumpet judgments are all being saved up for the last seven years then what are we experiencing? We have been experiencing God's limited and reserved judgment. He's been trying to wake us up already. So we scan the headlines and we study these symbolic descriptions in Revelation and we we try to correlate them to current world events because this is as bad as it can possibly get. Jesus has to be coming now. The time is right for Jesus' return. But every other generation has thought the exact same thing.
It was interesting in this, I mentioned this Attila the Hun and Fall of Rome book. Over a period of 100 years or so, the Huns continued their advance towards Constantinople, and they continued to weaken Roman defenses. They were considered barbarians. They were awful things written about them. The stories were legendary, lightly a mix of truth and exaggeration. But their success in battle caused heightened fear and paranoia. So much fear and panic was caused in their day that two centuries later, a Christian visionary in Syria wrote, the apocalypse will be her heralded by the Huns invading from the distant north. Their weapons would be dipped in a magic potion made from fetuses cut from pregnant women roasted alive. They would drink human blood and eat babies. They will move faster than the winds, more rapidly than storm clouds, and their war cries will be like the roaring of a lion. Terror at their coming will cover the whole earth like the floodwaters in the days of Noah. He was certain the end was near because of the behavior of the Huns. This Christian visionary was just taking current events. This is as bad as it could possibly get. This, this is dire and catastrophic, and he was superimposing that onto the text of Revelation. To suggest that the end was near, it has to be. But the World War II generation thought the end was near also. And the World War I generation thought the end was near. The Civil War generation thought the end was near. This 5th century Christian, the 1st century church, they were looking for Jesus to come back any day. And yet, he tarries. Now, I can't tell you that his return is not near. I can't tell you that it's not going to happen anytime soon. I can't say with any certainty that we're not coming to the end of the age and that Jesus could be here Thursday. It is hard to imagine how much worse things can get than the slaughter of children in a classroom. But of course, the unimaginable has happened before. You know, it was said that Genghis Khan in his heyday was estimated to have wiped out 10% of the Earth's population. That was a long time ago. That seems unimaginable. What I can say with absolute certainty is that we are closer now than we've ever been. What I can say is that every woman and child will have to make a decision between now and then as to whom they will serve. Jesus or anything else, even if it's us, that's not Jesus. Which really comes down to a choice between Jesus and Satan. Which I think is why this next verse is here. It's to serve as a warning. Before we get to the last three trumpets in the series, which are specifically targeted towards unbelievers, John's vision includes a warning to them. Here's an additional warning to the next three trumpets. This is the, the vision that John's saying, take note, pay attention. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other three trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, in Scripture, we know the eagle is often used to symbolize protection. In, in Deuteronomy 31, this is the song of Moses. God compares his care and his protection over Israel to a, a mother eagle who spreads her wings to protect her young from danger. Eagles symbolize power and sovereignty, especially the Lord's power and sovereignty. Perhaps the best-known use is in Isaiah, Isaiah 40. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So it's not accidental that an eagle is used in this vision. It's a symbol of power, a symbol of God's sovereignty. And the eagle cries out with a loud voice, 
Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth. Now this dwell on earth, is, it's an oft-repeated phrase in Revelation. It refers ex- exclusively to those who are not Jesus' followers. There are three trumpet judgments left and three woes. This is preparing us for the idea that the next three judgments are going to be aimed at, targeted at unbelievers specifically. We're going to look at those next week. So we've now looked at all the seven seals and most of the trumpet judgments, and there's still so much more for us to study and go through. But the picture, I think, starts to become clear as to why the book of Revelation starts with letters of encouragement to the churches. Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're ready to persevere. Make sure you're ready to endure. Make sure you're ready to overcome. Continue to walk worthy, because you're going to have to face a lot of stuff. It's not going to be easy. You know, on the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples, Matthew's gospel records a lot of what Jesus said to them that night. Matthew 25 records three different parables about preparedness, spiritual preparedness for his eventual return. The first was the parable of the ten virgins. That was the story of the the ten virgins who were waiting for the return of the bridegroom, and it said that five of them were wise. They had all their supplies stocked up and ready to go. The other five, they were foolish. They ran out of oil. News came that the bridegroom was approaching, and they ran off to the store. I don't know what was open then, Walmart or something. They ran off to get their supply of oil, and the bridegroom came while they were gone. They missed him, and they were locked out. They weren't prepared. There's a parable of the talents. We probably know that one a little better. What are we doing with what what Jesus has entrusted us with? How are we using our gifts and talents? Are we furthering his cause or our cause? Will we be met with, well done, good and faithful servant, or you wicked and slothful servant? You weren't prepared. And the chapter ends, the third of these three symbolic stories, it ends with this readiness of the church, the story of sheep and goats. You remember that the sheep, he said, gave, gave food to those who were hungry. It gave water to the thirsty. It helped clothe the naked, visited those in prisons and hospitals. To those, he will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That should be our goal, to hear those words. To have lived a life of perseverance and endurance. To be overcomers in this world so that we can inherit the next. That's what this book is about. It's calling the the unbeliever to believe. It's a reminder for the believer there's something better for us to look forward to. It is an epistle of joy, but offsetting This is darkness for those who are choosing to ignore the call of God. Where are we going to land? I pray that we continue to persevere and endure and be overcomers. And that while we're here waiting for his return, whether it's our lifetime or the next, we're doing what he calls us to do, part of which is go, teach, share, share the gospel with other people. It's not just about us being prepared, but it's about us calling other people to being prepared also. Let's pray.
Father, again, we are grateful for the chance to gather together this morning um, to hear even what are challenging words, I guess. Uh, it, there, it, there is joy to be found here, but there, there's also heaviness. There's also uh, troubling ideas. We all know people. We all have friends, family members who are unbelievers, who, who would fit into this dwellers of the earth category. And we know what the end is going to be for them. So while we rejoice in the fact that we have salvation guaranteed, that we have an eternity guaranteed, Lord, I pray that we, give a, that we are given a, a, a new spirit of, of engagement and a, a new desire to reach the lost, those that we know personally, even those that we just happen to run into, cross paths with. I just, th- those are divine coincidences. Lord, I pray that you give us courage and boldness to share the gospel with people as we meet them in, in the course of life and continue to help us, encourage us, equip us to be uh, to, to have perseverance and endurance so that we can be overcomers. Lord, I pray that you help us get a clear vision uh, for this book and, and its purpose, what it means for us and how we live out our lives. We thank you for the chance, the opportunity to spend time in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen.